you have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who has designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects and single family homes up and down the East Coast. And now, Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio. Square footage, meaning when you buy a home, you got 3,000 square feet, you got 1,000 square feet, whatever. That is the most expensive space we buy. Cubic feet, that's where we start to use our vertical space, is some of the least expensive that we have. Yet, that's probably one of the most underutilized areas in our homes. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. I'm Joe Britt, along with Ken Patterson. He is Ken the Contractor. He's here weekends at this time to take your questions. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. And don't forget, you can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor, and also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're shy and don't want to be on the radio and like to email us a question, you can do that, and you can forward your questions to Ken's website, KenTheContractor.com. For absolutely everything, there is indeed a season, and that holds true for home buying and home selling. And we're going to talk for a few moments about strategy in doing both. And I realize that I'm talking to at least a potential group of both buyers and sellers. So you can both tune in, and maybe when you come together to try and make a deal, you'll understand what the other one's thinking. Anyway, it doesn't hurt for you to understand both sides of it. So let's talk for a moment about this. Recently, I was reading uh, an article in Time Magazine, which prompted me to want to discuss this. And an article by Mark DiVenzio in Time Magazine looked at realtors in a particular region and how they felt about the right time to list your house, the best time to buy a house, uh, the best time to get the best deal in the marketplace. And it caused me to talk to a number of realtors in our marketplace and, frankly, to think a little bit about my own history in the buying and selling business of real estate. And really, when you start putting all this down, I found that article to be very accurate and very true. And we're coming upon what, for many people across the country, can be the best buying season. And you're saying, what are you talking about? We're we're in the cold of the year in most parts of this country, and it's going to be colder over the next several months. Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The best month to make an offer on a house, according to a survey of many realtors across the country, and again, this is supported by uh, Mark's article in Time Magazine and my own local research, really is January. Can you believe that? January. Yes, and I'm going to tell you why. It makes good sense to me. I've been in the marketplace for a number of decades, both buying and selling. And for there are fewer buyers, number one, that time of year. So if you happen to be in one of these markets that has really turned, and we have some of those nationwide where there is higher demand than we have seen in the last three, four, five years, there are going to be fewer buyers out there banging on the doors looking to see these houses that are listed. So the best month, according to many in the real estate industry nationwide, to look for buying a house will be during the cold winter, the nasty weather. So there's less competition and there's less bidding wars. And, yes, for some of you saying real estate's very slow right now where we are, there are still bidding wars that exist in certain parts of this country. So if you don't want to be involved in that, then you want to think about looking at homes that may be available in the marketplace in both January, February, maybe even into early March. But especially January, most people have identified as a great month to be out looking to shop for a home. Sellers also tend to be much more motivated than they will be in the spring. Why is that? Because in the spring, that's what everybody goes out. Let's look at homes. 
So the weather's a little nicer. And so you have to think a little bit about that deal that you might be able to make with a seller. And if you're a seller, you may want to think about that as well, saying maybe now is a good time to list my house because there will be some people out there. I'm a little more motivated than others, and I'll have a few people banging on the door uh, and see what I can come up with if you're looking to move something pretty rapidly. Now, let's go on to the next one. I guess we look at probably the best day. You say there's a best day. You've already told me there's a best month. Is there a best day to make an offer on a house? And again, according to realtors nationwide, the best day is the first Tuesday of the month. Now, here's their logic behind that. I've never narrowed this down, but in my experience, I would agree with the January-February scenario, certainly on looking at a time to buy real estate out there. But in terms of the first day, they're saying because the homeowner just wrote a check, most mortgages tend to be around the first of the month when mortgage payments are due. It says the homeowner just wrote the mortgage check for a house he or she no longer wants and needs to sell. And he doesn't want to write another one. So think about that. You're early enough in the month that they can be a little motivated. I just wrote this check. I've got three, three and a half weeks before the next time to write this $800, $1,000, $2,000, whatever the mortgage payment is. So they're going to be a little more motivated perhaps at that point. And it goes on to when we look at this, it says, why Tuesday? Because by Tuesday, the seller is also starting to worry a little bit that he won't get any offers from the house hunters that showed up over the weekend. So when you think about this logic, all of us are motivated by certain things. And if you put yourself in that situation, you may say, that's right. I had two or three people visit and look at the house over Saturday, maybe Sunday afternoon. Monday's come and gone. Didn't hear a word from the potential buyer or from the real estate agent. So that does put them in a frame of mind of saying, hey, here's a potential offer. Let me entertain this and see what's going on. Now, if you're wearing the other hat, if you are the seller, let's talk about the best time of the year to sell a house. And you may have surmised from what I just told you that it is indeed the springtime. Buyers come out of the woodwork during the spring. It's been cold. As I just said, a lot of them don't want to get out and look during the winter months. Also, for many in the springtime, if they had a tax refund coming, that checks in the bank by now. They've got a little cash to work with in some cases. They've had a few months to recover from the Christmas season, paying down some of those credit card bills. So you're more apt to see many more buyers in the springtime when it comes to selling a home, if you want to march them through the house. One of the other things that I'll tell you is a tip that realtors told me years ago. It's not just realtors, but also it's about buying and selling in general, and I've done lots and lots of that. In this case with a house, there's everyone recommends that you do not price the house with the last digit ending in a zero. You don't want to have that. So instead of 280000 you might want to have $282,284. You want to be very specific about that. And there's actually studies that have been done. I have a hard time buying into this, but I'm stating some feedback from some studies. That studies have been done that show people perceive a precise price, such as that 282, 284, as being actually lower than rounded ones, such as $280,000. Now, I'm one of these people that's going to take exception with their study because I look at the numbers. I pay attention to the price. But apparently, there's that perception throughout the country. So don't price your home ending in a zero. Now, the best day of the week to list your house also for sale is a Thursday. Remember, we said best day to make an offer is Tuesday. If you're going to list your house, the best day, according to so many of these realtors nationwide, is going to be on a Thursday. And this certainly is more true in a seller's market than in an average or in a buyer's market. But the thing you need to keep in mind is you list that house on Thursday, it will still be available at almost every market to show for the realtor, for the real estate group, to have it open for you 
on a Saturday or a Sunday, that immediate weekend, or at least to have it in the MLS, the listing services for other for it to show up when people are doing home searches. And that can be important because that will get you a group of people through probably quicker than doing it on a Monday, and you've got several days to wait and so forth. So that's just one thing they're indicating. It's also good to keep your house listed on the market as few days as possible. Obviously, you want to sell it, but meaning if you list on a Thursday, you start showing on a weekend, you get a contract in the near future, then it has fewer days on the market, which makes it a little more valuable. So those are a couple of key things for those of you wearing both buyer and seller hats. I want you to pay attention to that. We're coming up on two the uh, colder months, opportunities for you to buy. Coming up this half hour on this edition of Ken the Contractor, about a half hour from now, in the news, the granny pod. Is it right for you or a loved one? And also coming up at the bottom of the hour on this week's edition of One-on-One with Ken the Contractor, Ken's going to talk with a representative from Lennox Systems about whole house solar-powered heating and cooling. That's coming up right here. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. This is Ken the Contractor. A house is what you build. A home is what you make it. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor, and he's here each weekend to answer questions that are important to today's homeowner. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or forward your questions to our website, KenTheContractor.com. And William writes us from Emporia, Kansas. And William, we appreciate you listening to the show, and we appreciate you sending us the email. Looks like you've got a little project ahead of you. It says, we have an old wood front door that has been neglected. It is split and the bottom's coming apart. I'm looking at replacing it with a metal insulated door or a solid wood door. However, he goes on to say, I really don't like the metal because it can be dented so easily. My brother-in-law tells me, though, that solid wood exterior doors today will warp. How do you keep them from doing that? He said, I want to know if wood is really the right choice for me. Well, first off, it sounds to me, William, like you have made a decision that you really prefer the wood over the metal. I want to back up briefly, though, and tell you that there are differences in metal doors, and you're right. What would typically be called a builder-grade door that's used around the country or those that you will find even in the do-it-yourself yards, uh, supply houses, tend to have a thinner gauge on the exterior than a more superior door. And I say that in the sense that these exterior doors can be purchased with different gauge metal and also with different fill material on the inside. And that's one of the things I want you to think about. If a metal door is something you'd like to to use, an insulated metal door, but you just dislike the fact that it can be bent so easily, I want you to compare that with the wood. And we're going to discuss that in just a moment. But anyway... Take that into consideration. You can obtain heavier gauges, and they are more resistant to denting. Now, as far as the wood goes, any wood is subject to absorbing moisture if it's not properly sealed. And that's one of the main things you need to consider when you look at a wood door. Today, they work very well if you seal them. And most people will paint or stain the front, the back, and maybe the hinge side and the strike. They don't do the top and bottom. And if you don't do the top and bottom of these doors, if they're not fully sealed, the face and all edges... They will have a tendency to cup and warp or split and break down over time. So the way you stop them from doing uh, the the warping and the other issues that you have and your brother-in-law have pointed out is you make sure they're thoroughly sealed all the way around. And when you're storing the door before it's installed, be sure it's stored flat. Don't lean it on its side. If you follow those few things, I think you'll be able to make the right choice. Thanks for your email, William. Very good. Don't forget, all your emails, forward them to KenTheContractor.com. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. Let's go to the phones right now, and Dee Dee joins us from Severna Park, Maryland. Hi, Dee Dee. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Hi. How are you? Fine. Hi, Dee Dee. How can we help you? Um, I was just wondering about a question. Um, we don't have a fireplace, but all of our neighbors do, and whenever... 
it's night. Like, I go outside and I know all the smoke. But it's starting to come into our house, like, you know, I guess through the vents or something. And I just wondered if you knew a way to help to stop that from happening. All right, I'm going to give you a couple of pointers here, and I, I'm going to make some assumptions, and you can clarify this for me. One, you probably have a vented either bath fan, exhaust hood, dryer vent, one or all of those to the outside. Is that yes, correct? Yes, uh-huh. Okay. Do you know if all of those have backdraft dampers on them? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about with the damper? Yes, I do. Um, I think so. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you certainly want to be certain that they are closed because many times once they're opened, they are, they get in a stuck position. You also want to check those and be sure you haven't had birds building nests in them. They will actually sit and peck away at it and pull those backdraft dampers over open and actually create nests there. But I find that this is a common area that we receive outside air pollution, and smoke would be included in that. It gets into our house. And the reason being is that most homes have a negative air pressure, meaning when you turn that kitchen exhaust fan on, you are discharging to the outside, which is fine if it's vented to the exterior. However, you have to have makeup air. It comes from someplace. And homes aren't designed like commercial buildings. A commercial building has to have so much air coming in for the same amount of air going out. And typically that's heated or filtered air, but homes are not designed that way. So in our houses, we create a negative air pressure generally. And because of that, it's like a vacuum. Any small areas that we have around the outside, a window that may be partially open or maybe not weather-stripped correctly, a door and a threshold that's not sealing properly, or one of those backdraft dampers that's stuck open, when we turn that fan on, we have a tendency to suck that outside air in. So even though you may have closed off other areas of the home, you're still bringing what's outside inside. And those, those are some things I'd like you to take a look at. Okay, I definitely will. Um, that's a great point that you bring up because I know our dryer vent is right there. And I know in times past I have cleaned the little bit of, you know, dust and things out of it. So maybe that's something that I need to look at again, maybe more so down the, the tubing, the aluminum tubing that goes into the dryer. Well, it really, it would, you would start at the outside. You should right. have some type of a cover because if that's not closed when the dryer is off, then that is a spot right there. Even though there's a tubing or a pipe that goes to that, it's still an opening. And if nothing right. else, it, it'll come back through that system when you turn on a bathroom exhaust fan or, or a kitchen fan. Have you noticed the smoke or this outside pollution being more common? Are you sensing it more in the house when another fan is on? Um, no, because as far as I know, it, I usually definitely notice it at night when everybody's fireplaces are on, and I notice it in one of the bedrooms in the back of our house specifically, um, and that's why, I, you know, it is close to that dryer vent too, but um, it's more, like, it's not in the front of the house, I, you know, it doesn't seem like it comes in at all, but it's in the back of the house specifically in this one bedroom. All right, well, check the windows in that bedroom, or if you have an exterior door, and be sure the windows have good, tight-fitting uh, weather stripping on it because that may be a cause of, of just your, your air system, your furnace, if you will, being on. That also has a fan, and it circulates air. It, can, it creates a vacuum of sorts. You've got both supply and return air, and that's going to have a tendency to want to draw air in from these outside areas too. So give those areas a look, and I think you'll find you can help resolve the problem by making sure it's good and tight. Do you have foundation vents on the house? Yes, uh-huh, and my husband has sealed those off. Okay, so in the winter months, you want to have those closed typically anyway. Right. So that you're not bringing that air in. So look at these other holes on the outside. Check your doors and windows, and then start to pay attention when you turn the bathroom exhaust fan on or when you turn the kitchen exhaust on. Is this odor from the outside smoke, is it more common, more prevalent in that bedroom? 
Okay. I surely will, and that was so helpful. Thank you so much. We appreciate your call. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Dee Dee. Appreciate it. Don't forget, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or forward us your emails to KenTheContractor.com. And that is one thing, and, and depending on where you live, there may be some folks listening to us who this is not an issue at all. But for a lot of folks, not only fireplaces, but more so wood stoves. And I think a lot of folks assume it's a fireplace. And in practicality, in certain areas of our listening audience, wood stoves become a predominant way to heat the home during the winter. Well, they've become so common in recent years at the high cost of other fuel, electricity and heating oil and so forth, that we see more and more people putting those in. And the wood stoves are very energy efficient today, but there's so many different types, but you're seeing more and more smoke from those. They are environmentally friendly compared to how they were designed years ago, but we still have smoke in the atmosphere. And so for any of you that have particularly, I guess, allergy problems to smoke, you want to check your seals, the the thresholds, the weather stripping, all of those around your doors, your windows, maybe even around some of your switches and outlets, because if the house is old enough and sort of loose in terms of its construction, you'll find all kinds of places you can suck that outside air pollution in. Well, and particularly the other issue is depending on uh, where you live, uh, I live in an area where there are a lot of folks who use wood stoves, so that means instead of just having the wood stove on one side of you, it may be the case that you're surrounded by folks using wood stoves. And I sense that's what Dee Dee was saying with her particular question as well, that she doesn't have one, but a lot of people do, and this apparently is an issue to either her, she or her family. Do you have a question for Ken Patterson about your home inside or out? You can always reach Ken the Contractor at 800-614-2975. And also there's a whole bunch of helpful information online at our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. Along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt. Thanks for joining us this weekend. Ken's here every weekend at this time answering questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. You can always reach us at 800-614-2975 or email your questions to our website, KenTheContractor.com. And also, don't forget, if you want to hear podcasts of recent programs or just tap into a lot of the very valuable home improvement information at our website, it's all online at KenTheContractor.com. And it's time now for this week's edition of One-on-One with Ken the Contractor. Each week, Ken brings you information about products and services from companies and experts he interviews during his travels, all to make your life better, provide options, and importantly, save money. My next guest is Brandon Chase. Brandon is the product manager for Linux. Brandon, welcome to today's show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. There are so many exciting things going on with technology when it comes to heating and cooling. Linux has a product that's referred to as SunSource Energy System. Basically, the SunSource Energy System is a combination of an HVAC system with solar modules. And basically what we do is from data that we've gained and from information that we've learned from the Department of Energy, the number one usage of electricity in your home is your HVAC system. So what we wanted to do first is we offset that by upgrading your system to a more high-efficient system, and then you add solar modules to it to further decrease the amount of electricity that your home will use, making you less dependent on utility power and more self-sufficient. So the solar modules are not providing necessarily 100% of the power, I suppose the system could be, or am I reading this wrong? It's a supplement? Yeah, it is a supplement. You could put enough solar modules on there to, to run a system at a given time, or you could just put a few on there to supplement. And the real beneficial part of this is that the solar modules are not exclusively going to be generating power only for the HVAC system. 
when the HVAC system is in operation, the power will supplement some of the power that the HVAC system needs or possibly all of it. But when the air conditioner turns off, then that power then would go back through the air conditioner into your home's distribution panel to be used for everything else in the home, including your lights, TV, refrigerator, whatever. And if you actually happen to exceed the amount of power your home needs, then that power may actually go back to the utility company and may entitle you for a rebate or some kind of savings on your utility bill as well. But for those listening who are saying, I could actually have free heating or air conditioning through solar panels, that the system is capable of that if they acquire enough of the modules to go with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think the best way to look at this scenario is to look at on an annual basis, my air conditioner, my new air conditioner would use so much power in a year. How many modules would I need to offset that? That's a far less of a number of solar modules than you would need if you tried to get a certain number of solar modules to completely run your air conditioner in a snapshot of time. And all of this is integrated, including the control mechanism. Yeah, absolutely, yes. We use a, uh, a solar module with a microinverter technology uh, that make them far more efficient solar modules. They generate AC power instantaneously at the module, and that power all is consolidated and is, is wired to the outdoor unit. Does this system require more than the typical HVAC contractor to install? Does that mean an electrician, if this is a retrofit, an electrician still needs to come to the site to be making some electrical changes in the panel? As a builder, I assume that, but I want to clarify this to our and listeners. And honestly, it's up to the local codes and regulations. In many cases, because the HVAC contractor is generally used to dealing with low voltage, is able to handle this. It's not high voltage. It's not D.C. Now, some requirements in local municipalities or utilities may require a util or an electrician regardless of the fact that you are still using low voltage. But there's no rework of the electrical panel, assuming, again, I'm going to stay with the retrofit, that the service and the breaker, the wire size is all adequately sized. There's no reason to get into that. This is all about new heating and, and cooling system. Right. You're using the exact, existing connection that the HVAC system has. You don't have to add a sub-panel. You don't have to add or any breakers to your existing panel. You're using what's already there. So there is no additional electrical work necessary. Well, that system really intrigues me. This is some exciting information. I'm anxious to learn more about it over the upcoming days. Brandon, I appreciate you being with us and sharing all of this information with our listeners. Thanks again for the opportunity. That's this week's edition of One on One with Ken the Contractor as Ken talks with Brandon Chase of Lennox Systems about whole house solar-powered home heating and cooling. Uh, let's turn now to another email, and this one comes to us, Ken, from South Dakota. It does. Erica writes to us from Rosebud, South Dakota, says, I'm used to winter and snow. And I know too much snow can cause a roof to collapse. What's the best way to keep snow from getting too thick on my house roofs? I appreciate any pointers. Well, Erica, for you and everybody that happens to live in any snow area across this country, I'm glad you have that concern because as roof builds up on our, our snow builds up on our roof, we do have the potential to see these collapse and this happens year after year across this country, both on commercial and residential structures. One of the easiest things that we can do as homeowners is spend a little time to put on that winter coat and uh, the, the boots and get outside and actually remove the snow, but do it the safe way. I'm not encouraging you or anybody to get up on the roof of the house. 
first thing, before the snow starts to fall, you want to be sure that you have removed all the limbs, the leaves, and the debris that may be on that roof from the winter months because this helps trap that snow. That's always number one for everybody, and that's just part of fall maintenance to me. Also, you want to be sure that limbs on those trees that overhang your house have been cut back so that as they become heavy with snow or ice in the winter, they're not going to snap and wind up on the roof, which also can create additional snow buildup during the heavy snowfall season. So that's number two. Again, this is more about maintenance. Now, when it comes to the snowfall itself, I'm going to encourage all of you that have to deal with this, and I know you do where you live, Erica, buy yourself a snow rake. And some of you are saying, what? A snow rake? Yes, that's typically what they're called. There's so many things that are available in the market. But these have extension handles on them. They start with about 16 feet in length, and many of them will go as long as 31 feet. These are made of very lightweight materials. They may be made of aluminum or fiberglass. You'll find different sizes. You'll find different prices based on the handle and so forth. And simply get out there and pull as much of that snow off while you stand on the ground. Just pull it down to the ground so that you're relieving that snow buildup. And even if you can't reach to the peak, don't worry about it. As it builds up there, it will continue to drift and work its way down to these lighter areas where you have pulled much of that snow off. And in extreme parts of the country, I also want to tell you that some of you with gutters, you may find, and you may already be doing this, that you remove those gutters during the winter months. There are special cleats and clips that allow them to go in place easily in the spring and when you need them, and you snap them and remove them in the winter because this will slow down the snow and keep it, in fact, on the roof perhaps and hold it, also cause it to pull, in some cases, that gutter off the fascia. One other item that's been available for a long period of time that works on the roof, especially in hard-to-get areas, are roof melter pellets or tablets. You can buy those in containers just like you do for sidewalks, and you can throw them from the ground on the roof, and it will help dissipate the snow, especially in hard-to-reach areas. Several things you can do. Keep yourself safe, and by all means, share this information with your neighbors. Keep the snow build up to a minimum up there, and be safe as you go through the winter. You know, I, I guess the only concern I would have with some of these different things that you're recommending is what's it going to do to my roof? You know, it's one thing if it causes problems on your driveway and sidewalk, but all of a sudden, you got a hole in your roof in the winter. That's a problem. Yeah, well, these rakes are not typical of the yard rake that we're talking about. They're plastic or they've got rubber edges. I was thinking of the, of the chemical pellets that you were Yeah, the chemical pellets that were made, they are safe for shingles. Now, what you raise a good point. You want to be careful and read the side that if you're using these pellets, that they're safe for those of you that have metal roofs but they are safe for fiberglass, asphalt-type roof products. Uh, yeah. Always check to be sure because you don't want to be trying to deal with one problem and giving yourself another problem. No, you don't. You never do that. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. Do you have a question about your home? You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And if you'd like to forward an email question, you can do that by sending it to our website. That's Ken the Contractor. We'll take a quick break and come right back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. This is Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who's designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects as well as single family homes up and down the East Coast. He's also owned his own construction company for over 30 years, and now he brings his experience to the radio and the Internet to help you deal with the issues that are important to today's homeowner. A couple different ways that you can get your questions to Ken. Either give us a call at 800-614-2975 or email your questions to our website, kenthecontractor.com. And Louise has an email question for us, Ken, that is not that out of the ordinary. That's something that a lot of folks probably in our audience try to have to deal with every now and then. She wants to know how to paint ceramic tile. 
Yeah, it's a question we get occasionally, but not very often. It says we're restoring an old cabin, and the tub shower in our bathroom looks awful. Some kind of mold or mildew is black in the grout, and nothing gets it off, not even straight bleach or steel wool. And on top of that, whoever installed the shower did a messy job, so the grout smeared. Now, this is where she goes with this. We don't want to have to replace the whole thing. Is there some kind of paint or stain that works on plastic shower stalls and will cover the black stains? Now, first, Louise, what you have done here, I think, in your email is you've mixed two possibilities, so I have to address both of these quickly because you're asking me, one, you're saying grout, which is common to ceramic tile, and then you're also talking about plastic shower stalls, and then you're asking if it can be painted or what gets it off. So I'm going to give create some generic answers here and answer this also on the website. First, if you are dealing with a, uh, a ceramic or a porcelain, there is a process of preparing that tile to actually clean the tile and to paint the tile. Now, it's a fairly involved process. It's like anything else that I tell you and everybody else about. The work is going to be in the prep. It's not so much in the final application of that finished coat. So you want to get with your local paint store. You want to tell them what you are doing, and they will point you in the direction of the specific paints that you need. But you're also going to need some fine steel wool or fiberglass or uh, sandpaper. You're going to have to sand the glaze off of the tile and you're going to have to prep it properly and still have to clean this mold and mildew if you've got a grout issue because that will bleed through most of these paints again. So first, since you've got sort of a combined question, you're asking, can we paint this? Yes, you can. And for anyone who wants to, it's a good way to change color, but you have to use the right paint. You have to go through the proper process. I'll also post a link to some of the companies that specialize in this on my website, kenthecontractor.com. Now, if you're dealing with fiberglass, the same holds true. You can paint fiberglass walls. Some of the old tub shower combinations or even the newer ones are both fiberglass and acrylic, and there is a slight difference in those. There's certainly a chemical difference in those, but there's a, there's a sheen or a gel coat on both, and that will prevent any paint from bonding. So you're also going to have to do a fair amount of prep work, and if these are fiberglass panels and they happen to be caulked in the corners or where the wall panel meets the tub, you're going to have to remove all of the caulking before you get into painting. So a lot of work, regardless of what you're dealing with, ceramic or fiberglass, you can handle, you can treat both with paint, do it properly, and you'll have many years of satisfaction. But if you do it wrong, you're going to kick yourself. All right, time now for In the News. Ken brings you products, trends, tips, and services that are important for you to make informed decisions about your home maintenance, purchases, remodeling, and new construction. And this is a very intriguing one. It's called the Granny Pod. Well, that's the nickname that people have given to it. And I'll tell you, that nickname has been all over the media in the last few days, and so we have to spend a little bit of time talking about this and some of the alternatives. But where this has come about, it really is this particular one, uh, article in Washington Post and uh, in Atlanta and so many other places here recently and on the, the national uh, TV news, this particular one I want to talk about is called The Med Cottage. And it's designed by a Blacksburg company with the help of Virginia Tech and is essentially a portable hospital room. Now, there are other companies, two other companies in the nation, largely in the Northeast, that are producing something similar to this. And these are portable or modular units. But The Med Cottage is they bill it really, as I said, is a portable hospital room. Doesn't look sterile based on the pictures I've seen like that, meaning it does, it looks like a standard home, but it's extremely high tech. And in the Commonwealth of Virginia, the General Assembly has actually approved the installation of these and they treat them with a very special name. They're temporary housing basically for medical purposes so that 
localities can work that into their zoning ordinances because that's an issue I know that a lot of you around the country will have, adding something that's a modular unit, even though it's for the sake of medical purposes, uh, for you, for a loved one, for a spouse, where they need special facilities, but you don't have the room internally or you live in a multi-story house and you can't accommodate all of these changes that that individual happens to need. So you may want to consider a look at this med cottage, and you can go online and find more information about that. But they're really appealing to this population of over 65. And according to the Census Bureau, uh, that is the fastest growing population in the country. In less than 20 years, the number of Americans who are 65 or older will top 72 million. That's a lot of potential users, folks. Here's two stats that should open your eyes to tell you how big an issue this is going to be. The fastest growing demographic group in America is 85 plus. And statistics were just released that there were more adult diapers than diapers for babies and toddlers sold in the USA in the past year. You know, when you look at these numbers, we, we are able to to live much longer in this country through the help of medicine and health care and various things, but we have other ailments to deal with. And that's what this med cottage is designed to do. And whether you're 65 or 85 or you, you happen to have someone that's much younger that has health care issues, this can be an ideal situation for someone that needs accessible living, need to be on site with you, still need to be part of the family, not off in a nursing home or a health care facility somewhere, and in the long term for much less money. Now, when I tell you this, this particular unit, you're going to have sticker shock because it retails for about $85,000. Then you still have to get it to the site, set it up, build your ramps, and do other things. And they're saying generally this is about $125,000. But if you have someone that's going to be in long-term health care, again, it could be a middle-aged person in their 30s with a particular problem. Uh, at forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year in a facility, this could be ideal and continues to integrate them, and they continue to be part of the family, and you're right there to do what you can. But the technology is amazing that's in this. I suggest all of you take a quick look at it, but that's in the news today, the Med Cottage, also known affectionately as the Granny Pod. Now, there's a couple things that caught my eye when I saw the article and read about it on the air. One was all the, the technical things that you're, you're able to do this. As you said, this basically is, for lack of a better term, a souped up hospital room. It has the ability to monitor vital signs, different things like that. But talk for a moment about the floor, because that was really intriguing. Yeah, the floor system. And I, I want to find out more about the technical side of this. Like, let me read you a, an item regarding this flooring. And it's uh, this is a marketing strategy they have. It says the company's sales pitch includes dropping an egg onto its specially designed floor from a height of seven feet to show that the egg will not break. People think it's a rubber egg until they hold it over a hard surface and drop it from five inches and it breaks. So when you look at the technology from oxygen to computer monitors for all of your health care, everything you would have in a hospital facility, what we read about this, it is literally a portable hospital room. There are cameras and motion sensors that will pick up a fall if someone trips and falls in there and, and you're no one's right there with them. There's also a fold-out bed if they happen to have overnight nursing care or there's a time when that's needed. If you can think of it, they have it. See, to me, the most intriguing thing is that flooring. Yeah, I thought that would catch your eye and your ear when I talked about that a little earlier. It is so unique. Because just think about it. If you just dropped an egg from inches, it's going to break. They're talking about dropping it. But seven feet. That, that is remarkable. We'll get more on that, I know, because I know Ken's the curious type. 
He'll find out some more and bring it to us in an upcoming program. That'll do it for this hour of Ken the Contractor. Each week, we bring you the answers to your questions and the questions that are important to today's homeowner. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975 or online at KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Do you have questions about your home, inside or out? KenTheContractor.com is all you need to know. I'm Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. Visit KenTheContractor.com for answers to plumbing, fencing, electrical, roofing, painting, heating, fireplaces, decks, and much more. Submit your questions or call anytime. Remember, KenTheContractor.com, where folks come for professional answers. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.